of August, the doctrine of anthropology. Anthropology is the study of man. And we broke up amongst the four, or amongst the pastors, four subject matters. And I've been assigned the subject matter of personhood. You know, you might say, what in the world is personhood? Well, we'll attempt to define that um, shortly. But you know, when we look in our culture, you know, sadly, history is full of examples of the torture and oppression that occurs amongst mankind when people try to really define their own definition of what is a person or what is human personhood. And they will try to to exclude some groups of people or they'll try to redefine what it is or maybe saying that certain groups of people aren't privileged to be included in this category. And we look through our American history. Um, we could certainly go broader than that, but you know, when we think of American slavery, um, many viewed the African slaves as, as mere property, as not people. And so they, you know, I, I often wonder, how in the world could they do such cruel things, and how could southern preachers, but I think they were so indoctrinated, they're just not the same level as they are. They're not human, or they're inferior to what they are. You know, when the slaves were sold, they would be often put into, into stalls, the same stalls that they would have animals in, and they would have sheets over these, white sheets over these stalls so that the bidders couldn't see ahead of time what they were going to bid on, and then at a certain time, they would allow them to check them out. They would, they would have white gloves and look at their teeth like an animal and just to see their age and to determine, and then the bidding would go on from there. They would buy these, these individuals, and sometimes it would be so, I mean, it was wicked every which way, but sometimes these enslaved women would just become pieces for the, the, the plantation owners and the bosses. Sometimes they would pick out a male and a, and a, and a female that would be good, good breeders so they could sell their children at a higher price. I mean, just, just evil, but just not human. Or we think of Nazi Germany, Hitler and Nazi Germany, how they viewed the Jews, gypsies, and others clearly as aliens or as inferior individuals, and that really these Jews weren't interested in the economic gain of the country of Germany. They were just in it for themselves, and they were communists anyway. And so it was just his hatred to instill they're less than human, they're inferior people. Or we look at in the first half of the 1900s in America, People with disabilities were treated very unsympathetically. Um, they were viewed as, as, by the majority of society, just inferior people because they didn't have the same abilities or they were low levels of abnormal behavior or low levels of economic income. In fact, if they were popular, it would be often only at the freak shows where you could pay money to go see people that just were, were different. Or I think of 20th century America or even here, in Little Rock, when we visited Central High School, where the Little Rock Nine and all that, that went down in segregation in America, um, their blacks were just viewed as second-class citizens. They didn't deserve to be in with the same schools, and so segregation was something that, that happened. Um, blacks would be paid less than white counterparts. Um, they would be made to sit in the back of the bus. Um, they would be served in the rear of restaurants, and on it went. Um, Jim Crow, which is mandated racial segregation laws in public, had some of these rules that a black male could not offer his hand to a white male because that would be to say we're equal. Or a white wouldn't have to return courtesy to a black when they were speaking. They would never say Mr. or Miss, Sir or Ma'am. It just wasn't because they were inferior. Um, or if a black and white were to eat at the restaurant at the same table, which wasn't supposed to happen, then the black would be served after the white was, was done eating. Um, or more currently in our time, um, the United States Supreme Court legalized abortion on January 22, 1973. And the Supreme Court declared that the concept of person, what is a person, as used in the United States Constitution, applied only at birth. And thus they were able to come along and say, well, then we could have abortion because they're not people yet, and which has resulted in 67 million people being murdered um, in abortion. And that scene is still playing out, though. We're glad to see it overturned. So what we want to accomplish tonight, we want to look at a, a biblical view of personhood, but we don't want it to just be all academic, because I'm guessing we're probably, most of us agree anyway in what we're saying here. 
um, but that have implications. Okay, how does it apply in my life? How do I take this, this doctrine home um, and impact it in my everyday walk? Let's start with the definition of personhood. Now, you have to have your thinking caps on. I didn't mean for this to be complicated, but I'm afraid that maybe it's drifted in that direction. And I looked at it, I just couldn't break it down any other um, my minute mind. But the word personhood comes from, you ready? Joining the word person with a suffolk hood. We're good so far? Okay, that's, that's, that's not too complicated. Hood is a state or condition of being. Hood is a state or condition of being. So personhood is a state or condition of being a, what? A person. Okay, we're good so far. All right, now hold on. So what is a person? A person is a human being. Okay, so what is a, you ready? What is a being? Is a condition or state of existence. <laughs> so a human being is a person who exists. Um, personhood is a state or condition of being a human that exists. So that's really what we're landing on and looking at tonight. Personhood is a, it's being a human and that human exists. So we're talking about when does personhood begin? Let me begin with first an unbiblical view of personhood, and then we'll get into Scripture and try to figure it out if you could see that clearly on the screen. Um, Genesis chapter 3. We're going to land in a couple passages. Eventually we'll be in Psalm 139. But Genesis 3 records that fateful day when Adam and Eve or when man rebelled against God, against God's rule on their life. And Adam and Eve defied their relationship with God. They thought that they were superior. They wanted to do things their own way. They didn't want to do it God's way. This was really cosmic treason when man is rebelling against God. Instead of believing God's holy and wise word where it says in Genesis chapter 3, it says the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat. Um, but they believed the serpent's devious lies. They believed his deceitful words instead. And what was their response? God carried out his promise of judgment when God said, the day you eat of this, you shall surely die. And that's what happened in their lives. Futility, death, and existence define really man's existence. So now they're turned loose from this garden, this paradise, and things become a nightmare as what's happening in their in life. Justin Holcomb wrote a, an interesting article on this subject, and he, and I quote him, this tragic fall plunge humanity into a relational abyss. So it just became a relational nightmare as man now is in this falling state as they're fighting, combating one another. So here they are after the fall, they're enslaved to sin, but they're enslaved to their hatred and rebellion against God. So they hate God on the one hand, then on the other hand, they're seeking to make themselves God. And so if you're seeking to make yourself God, I'm seeking to make myself, we're gonna have a problem with one another. And so it becomes using and abusing one another in their relationships, trying to usurp their power over one another. And that's the fallen world in which we live. So this fallen man tries to just usurp and elevate themselves. And really, it's, it's humanity, the fall of mankind, and this whole subject of personhood. I think the center of it oftentimes, and rightly so, is the abortion issue. When we look at the abortion issue and what's a person, the liberals will say many do not associate human personhood with human biological life. That is, just you know, there's life in there, but it's not, that's not a person yet. Roe versus Wade made that clear. There was an American philosopher. Her name is Mary Ann Warren. I want to write or read a little bit of what she said. She wrote a well-known document, article, defending the moral and legal use of abortion. She said, well, here's, here's why it's, it's okay. And in this article, she acknowledges that an, if an unborn fetus is a full-fledged human person, then abortion is morally wrong. So she said, true, if a fetus is, is a person, then abortion is wrong. In fact, it's, it's murder. But the crux of her argument is, not, is that fetuses, in fact, are not persons. And I want you to read to you what she states. She doesn't define personhood, but here are the characteristics. And this is, this is huge in the liberal world. It's often quoted by abortion activists, her article, and what she states, she comes up with five characteristics here are the five traits that she says define the concept of personhood. Human humanity. Consciousness, that you're, you're conscious. Reasoning, 
self-motivated activity, the capacity to communicate, and the presence of self-awareness. And she argues that fetuses lack them all. We'll address this a little bit later. But maybe we could sum it up in this. She says that personhood is equivalent to self-awareness. So fetuses aren't self-aware, so they're not persons. Let's look at the biblical view of personhood. What does the Bible say? What should be our response to, to Warren's statement? If the liberals, and we're surrounded by them, they're upset over the Supreme Court ruling in many states, action that's being taken from Kansas, hoping they would be more conservative, and what Kansas voted on Supreme Court 61 to 49, um, um, not to ban it, um, abortion. Today, Warren's criteria for personhood is really is a topic. Um, and people will, will try to use her, but however, to agree with Warren's criteria for personhood, there's, there's a problem with it. One must, if you're going to agree with Warren, you have to be comfortable with saying that all children 18 months and younger are not people because childhood development research says that children at 18 months start to become aware of self-awareness. So really, it's infants that are involved in her in her description. Infants, there's not self-awareness according to the child research experts. So then we begin to really question the characteristics. You know, are the characteristics, are they true? Um, These characteristics, just because maybe they may define adults all across the front row, most throughout the auditorium, you too, Ray. Um, They they may define us as, as adults but it's not obvious that these are necessary traits for personhood, right? Just because it defines us, but does it mean if people don't have all of these five qualities, they're not a person? Is that, are we ready to say that? Of course we would not say that. If one really takes Warren's argument to the fullest, you know who's gonna be eliminated? Um, It's not morally wrong then to take life. It's not wrong to take fetuses. It's not wrong to take infants. It's not wrong to terminate people with certain illnesses that are in comas and they're just not responding. It's not wrong to take an adult person when they're senile and there's there's no self-awareness. You're going to have problems fitting in those five characteristics into those areas. I want us to view um, a three-minute clip by Dr. Lyle. He is a gynecologist and obstetrician um, specialist, and he was speaking down at the University of Florida um, at a medical school, and I want to just have you hear what, what he says in this clip. Patient care, patient rights is a huge concept, not only among our kids right now, but also in the news and in the media, where a patient is a person, is entitled to respect, and entitled to bodily integrity. Well, who is a patient? I was speaking at the University of Florida recently at the medical school, and I asked the students, if somebody was not born here in the United States, but they needed a a blood transfusion to save their life, but they weren't born in the United States, are they entitled to that blood transfusion to save their life? And the kids were all nodding their heads. I said, what if this same patient who wasn't born in the United States is gonna die unless we do heart surgery on this patient? They'd say, doesn't matter if they were not born in the United States. If they're going to die, that's the role of a physician. That's the role of our medical community to defend them, protect them, and provide them health care. I said, well, what if they need laser surgery? What if they need spina bifida surgery? And they're like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's a blood transfusion, if it's heart surgery, spina bifida surgery, laser surgery. It doesn't matter if they were born in the United States or not. They are entitled to that access to health care. That is their right. I said, I agree. You know, that is the role of medicine is to provide quality health care. I said, now, Couple things. Number one, all these patients were patients of mine. That's what they have in common. But I then told them that the other thing they all have in common is every one of these patients is still in the womb of their mother. They haven't been born yet. All of a sudden they got really quiet. I said, yeah, you just told me that patients have rights and that we need to respect patients because they are our patients and a patient is a person. So if we're doing heart surgery, we're doing spina bifida corrective surgery, doing blood transfusions on the baby, they are clearly patients. And if they are a patient, they are a person. And if they are a person, they are entitled to protection. Science and video 
is a great source of education. We like to use the tools of modern obstetrics to reveal not just the, the person within the womb, but the personality. I mean, I show ultrasound of my daughter. She has the hiccups in the womb. She's only 12 weeks along. She has the hiccups, and she's actually jumping and sliding in the womb. So let people know that we can see the personality, we can see the personhood inside of the womb. We treat them as patients. So whether it is going from a biblical standpoint that we're created in the image of God, very, very important. But if somebody doesn't recognize scripture, they're going to be like, I don't see that as an authoritative source. But what can we use? We can use something that they're going to understand, visual cues. Let them see the baby on the inside with 2D ultrasound, 3D ultrasound, MRIs. Show how we're doing surgery on the babies on the inside. Go to YouTube. Look up fetal surgery. There are centers all across the country that are competing for the business to show that they're the best fetal program in the country. How, you know, we can do this and we can do that. We can do this type of surgery. They're proud of it. And you look at how they treat these patients in the womb. You can't deny that they are patients. And if they are patients, they are a person. And if they are a person, they deserve to be protected. So yes, use scripture, but also use the modern technology. Use the visual training that we are just blessed with that's online. You know, deep problem really with, with Warren's definition of personhood is that she places inherent value or worth in what? What is she placing all of her emphasis in? It's in man's abilities, is that correct? It's what they're able to do. Uh, and their, cap- their cap- capacities and what, what's, um, what's valuable, is, she thinks, is man's abilities and what, what they're able to do. But when we look at Scripture and we understand what is really, what is really what's valuable, what is unique and special about, about people, what is the real value? If you were to say one thing or a phrase, this is what's really special, what would you say? Any thoughts? You know, Barb, you're so sharp. Would, would you influence John? <laughs> Barbara said, made in the image of God. She is spot on. That is what's really valuable and, and important, not in man's capacities and not in their abilities, reasoning, consciousness, self-awareness. It's being made in the very image of God. Genesis 1.26 says, let us make man in our own image. The most unique thing about humans is that we're made in the image of God. We're only going to address this briefly. I think Pastor Jim, if I remember correctly, is addressing this um, down the road here this month. Uh, But when we look at the most unique things, human beings are made in the image of God, and that's precious. That's an incredible relationship. It doesn't depend on our consciousness. It doesn't depend on our reasoning. It doesn't depend on our communication or, or something else. It just comes out and makes this statement that, it, that really shows the dignity of all humans made in the image of God, made in his likeness. It's declaring that we resemble God, that we're similar, to, um, made like as he is. Um, God is, is immaterial, so it's not speaking of the, the physical body, but it's setting humans apart from the animal world, that we are socially, um, that we're morally, um, that we're, we're mentally made, made in God's image. What an awesome, awesome statement. And that becomes then the statement for preciousness as we look at one another, that we don't look at skin color, we don't look at, at status in this life, we don't look at their abilities but because you're made in the image of God, you then are precious. Um, I have two young people coming up to read scripture. I'm going to ask Titus if he would come up first. And Titus is going to read a couple passages. You know, not only does the Bible declare that man is made in the image of God, but also shows that babies in the womb are made and referred to as persons. So we want you, he's going to read Genesis 25 first. When Isaac prays his wife, his barren wife, Rebecca, could bear children. This is what's happened. Genesis 25, verses 11, 21 and 22. Genesis 25, 21 and 22. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. 
Okay, before we get to the next one, thanks, buddy. We're seeing an important statement here. What is, what's there a close connection to, between, between conceived and between um, childbirth? Okay, and he's looking at conceived and children, I mean. And he's viewing as I was conceived, and he speaks that there's no process that at conception it's a person. And that's what he's showing in Genesis 25. She conceived, and immediately there's a struggle that's going on in the womb. And there's something similar that Job says in chapter 3, verse 3. Job 3, 3. Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, a man is conceived. All right. Thanks, buddy. So we see that parallel that at conception, a man, a person is born. So it's not happening months down the road. It's not happening right at birth that it's a person that's in the womb. Haley Furry's going to come up and read a couple passages that give a, a similar um, vein. And she'll read from Luke chapter 1, verse 41 and verse 44. And when Elizabeth heard the greetings of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke one forty one. Luke one forty four. And for behold the sounds of your greetings came to my ears, and the baby in my womb leaped for joy. You hear what she read in the womb, what's what's the the child called? It's called a baby. And when the baby heard something, the baby, what did it do? It expressed joy. He talked about the hiccups and rolling. You know, here's the baby jumping out of joy. So there's movement. There's, there's, there's action happening. And then the last passage is Jeremiah 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appoint you and a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah 1, 5. Thank you, buddy. So Jeremiah is referring to at conception when he's in the womb that he's a person. There's another important verse. Let me read Exodus 21, verses 22 and um, 25. I'm sorry, 21, 22, and 25. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there's no harm the one who hit her shall be surely fine, as the woman's husband shall pose on him, and he shall pass as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn. So here, God is instructing Moses as he writes, if there's harm to this child, there's going to be, I mean, it's a person that's spoken, life for life. So when we speak in the womb, May we never back down. It is a life. It's conception. God, and we're going to look shortly here in Psalm 139. God is putting together this little sweet package that he is shaping in the womb. Turn with me, please, to Psalm 139 as we spend a couple minutes, couple minutes in this great chapter. The Bible shows in Psalm 139, 13 to 18, what is the most unique thing about being a human. What is the most unique thing um, about a person is their relationship to God as their creator. God is their creator. And this is, in this passage, we see sweet language that's being just combined with, with conception, with purse, with a person, and, and being made in the image of God. The unique thing doesn't depend on, on consciousness. It doesn't depend on self-awareness. It doesn't depend on some capacity or ability that they have, but he defines it here. And we're not going to, and I have it in the notes just if you wanted to chase this down later on your, on your own in the back there. It talks about the past, present, the future. Psalm 139 looks at all of those. In the past, God, you knew me. That's verses one and two. And he talks about, you search me, that intimate relationship. Then he talks about the present in verses two and three. God, you've known me. You know, from, from, a, from a distance, you've known me in that intimate relationship. He talks in the future in verse 10. But here in verses 13 to, to 18, I want to look at the prenatal state and God's intimate relationship with, with this child. Let me read verses 13 to 18 of Psalm 139. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, 
when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. So here the psalmist is just speaking of this incredible work of God that God has shaped, that God was, control, was in control of the very conception of life as this life is being formed and shaped, that God is, is there in the deepest recesses, may I say, in the deepest organs, that God is present and shaping. It wasn't Mother Nature. It wasn't just some coincidence. It just wasn't some luck or something that evolved, but it was God that was intimately shape, shaping this baby's form. God is at work there, that God is present. He's weaving together the substances to form a a creature in his image, a created image in his person. God is weaving all of the parts together as we look at this ultrasound of this this little one. Speaking to my daughter, Katie, I should have got an ultrasound of our grandchild that's coming. But just the sweetness of the God shaping and forming and molding and putting together a little one. God declares that he intimately knew them. We're intimately known by our creator. What a statement that the psalmist is declaring, God, you knew me. Then we look in verse 14. I mean, the psalmist is just so excited. He can't keep silent. He says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderful. I mean, he just ponders that thought, ponders really verses 1 to 12 and God's activity in his life, and he just shouts out and says, God, I can't keep silent. He must shout praise to the, to the wonderful, powerful creator that has made him this all-wise God. And this psalmist is talking about the omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God. All of these attributes of God are present, and he's focusing on that intimate relationship that you have with me, this little baby, this little person that's being shaped and being put together in the womb. And he shouts, God, your works are so wonderful. Your works are so miraculous to distinguish, to be extraordinary. All of God's works are extraordinary, but his focus here is on the shaping of a human baby, human being into a baby. You know, there are many things that I love about little babies, but I just love to feel their little feet so tiny and their little hands ever moving and that little feet you just tickle. Sometimes it jumps, not all the time, right? But just to have that precious is that little, your one finger is more than the length of their whole foot. But just the sweetness and to think of God shaping and molding and putting it all together is stunning. And this psalmist says, God, how fearfully and wonderfully I am made. But God in his intimacy is doing the making. God is doing the shaping of this person. And he's really declaring how wonderfully we are made. Does God have a purpose for our lives? Is it just, oh, you happen to be, okay, here you are. Oh, you got some self-awareness, consciousness. So look at this, oh, it's a person now. No, God has a purpose. God has an intention. And God is wonderfully shaping this baby for what purpose? to bring him glory. And that's what we strive for as parents. We want our children to bring God glory. We want our children to, to proclaim the name of God. And that's, that's what God is shaping this little one for, this purpose. But verse 15, the psalmist says, my frame was not hidden from you. I'm not sure his frame is referring to his bones or to all of the potentiality that lay undeveloped in this, this little person that's being developed. But he says that, God, my frame wasn't hidden from you. You, you are aware of my, my frame. You know full well the capabilities that I will have or that I won't have. But God is framing and shaping. Notice it's interesting, the depths of the earth. It's deep in the mother's womb that God is, is, is shaping. You know, I love when the ultrasounds, when we were able to see snapshots, pictures of our, of our girls, and you start to see them taking shape. And it's just neat to see that of our, our, of our grandchildren, whether it's a fetal ultrasound or whether it's an MRI ultrasounds that we're able to get a, get a picture. It's a little bit more that's developed every, every two weeks as we're following and just seeing how God's putting this all together. The all-seeing eye in verse 16 of God is forming this little creature, this little, this little person, I should say. Um, your eye saw my unformed substance. God's eye saw it. Mom and dad wasn't able to see it yet, nor should they because the baby wasn't completed yet. But God is putting this all together, showing that God is in absolute control. 
Um, he understands the presence of God, that God has a purpose, that God's ordaining, but is speaking of God's absolute control as he's putting this little one together. He numbered the days, and nothing can change or alter the good plan of our lives that he's putting together. Nothing in the universe is random. There's no accidents. There's, there's always purpose with God. You know, we look at our children and we thought we were done with three children and God had different plans, but it wasn't an accident with God. God had his purposes and his plans for each of our children. God's control is continually always in, in, in order. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. God, you, you knew of my days. They were written in, in your book prior to my life. So this is a person. God's written their days in a, in a book and he has a purpose in their lives. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. The psalmist is just caught up in not just dwelling on abstract thoughts, but to say, God, you, you think of me. You have precious thoughts towards me. And he's just caught up in that. And he's just amazed at how precious, how valuable God's thoughts are to him, to the psalmist, that God cares for us. God cares for his creation. I mean, pause and think of that. The creator of the universe that, that is superior to anything we can imagine cares for us. I mean, we get excited. I, you know, talk about, oh, the day I met Gary Maddox in San Francisco, you know, because I knew a name and dropped a name and he came over and talked to me. I mean, really? He's a ball player that's on, oh, let's see, he, I think he's older than I am, so he's really old. <laughs> you know, but here we know God, the, the CEO of our planet, the one that's our creator, our personal caretaker, our shepherd. He made us and he knows us. And the psalmist is so deeply moved by that. How precious, how valuable. I mean, think of things that are precious to you apart from God or other. This, is, this trumps it way beyond that. Speaking of God, just your thoughts of me, they are so precious when I am in the womb that I am not completed yet. Verse 18, if I were to count them, there are more than the sand I awake and I am still with you. He said, God, if I were to try to, to count just your precious thoughts, it's more than I could ponder. It's more than I understand your preciousness and your thoughts towards me. So what are the consequences of biblical personhood? Biblical view of personhood shows that personhood begins in the womb. And it extends to the final breath, the end of life. It's not to be taken for granted ever while the person has breath, that they are a person, that they're to be treated with dignity, treated with respect, with love. Being in the image of God is the foundation that makes that person valuable. It's not some capacity or ability, what able, able to do, what able to, to do for us. That makes it man-centered. It is God-centered. We're made in the very image of God. This includes everything. It includes prenatal. It includes infant. It includes children. It includes adults. It includes healthy adults, adults that are unhealthy, um, elderly. Every person, it says, is precious in the, in the eyes of God. And when babies to elderly are discarded because people have their agendas because they're selfish and these individuals or objects get in the way of what we want to do that is as evil as it gets. That God has a precious view of each one of us in his, in his view when we started as an infant that he was shaping and forming. You know, some argue that personhood exists only if someone can function in a certain capacity. But personhood is dependent not on what a human does, you ready? But it depends on what God has done for them. It's not on what I can do, but it's what God has done. And what he's done, he's declared that I'm made in the image of God, that he's intimately known me, known us, and we're valuable to him, and that's precious. So a person's words is not on what they can do, but it's what God has, God has done. And I get that. Most of us, I, I would guess, agree with all of that. Um, maybe this will help us as we talk to secular people in the world. You know, we have a biblical understanding of personhood, dignity as image bearers. We understand there's not to be violence, there's not to be oppression, exploitation of the weak by the strong, abortion, infanticide, um, child abuse, sex trafficking, racism, discrimination against the disabled, dislike, uneducated, all of that. So 
What's the application to us? What do we take away from this? What, where, where does the rubber meet the road, so to speak? When we think of personhood and the preciousness of everybody in the image of God, how does it, how did all of these, these thoughts impact our actions? You know, it's not just having the right, the right attitudes, and not just have, but it's also doing the right thing. So what's the application that we can draw on? Let me start with, first of all, the home. You know, at times there's, there's counseling that's needed in homes, and all of us probably would have done well in every phase of our lives to keep having someone speak in our lives and keep being better what God wants us to be. But when we think of a spouse that may abuse a spouse, whether it's verbal or, or things that are being said, what has to be remembered is I need to honor this person because they're made in the image of God. They're precious to God, and they should be precious to us besides being supposedly your best friend on earth. Um, so spouses, when we look at in marriage, that the home isn't to be a battlefield. Maybe the husband, maybe the wife will do things that, that you're annoyed with. But God, they're in the image of God. Keep giving me patience. Lord knows I need, it, need their patience towards me as we keep dealing and remembering the dignity that they have. Then it also speaks to the area of dating um, or courting wherever you are in that and that mindset, dating according. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, control your body in holiness and honor. So as we're with our um, date or person we're courting, and you're on, uh, on in a, with them, not in a private setting, how are you treating? How are you treating them? How are you allowing yourself to be treated? And the Bible says we're to have honor and respect because they're made in a relationship, dignity towards God. I'm going to treat them in a way that God's right in the back seat, which he's closer than that, then God would be honored. Um, do we look at sometimes as people as odd? Sometimes people can just be annoying. I, I'm sure I've never been that way to you. Um, but sometimes we look at people, they're odd, or sometimes they're, they're annoying. Um, what's, our, what's our conduct towards them? How do we treat them? How, what are our, our, our actions? I need to remember, God... This person, even though they're unique and, and they say things that they shouldn't say and they interrupt and they do all these things, whatever it might be, they're made in the image of God. And I need to have patience towards them and treat them with dignity just as I would some other individual because of their special um, creation in the eyes of God. that They resemble God. Do we get involved in the lives of other people? Um, one of the things that we really are desirous in Faith Baptist is we really want our DNA to be discipleship. And I, I, we say that, but we really mean that. Um, I love when, whether it's I with men or I see ladies that are discipling ladies or um, Pastor Lawrence and Amanda or uh, discipling teens. And we want to be involved in people's lives, but that ought to be not just the leaders or the deacons. That should be everybody. Um, not just small group leaders, but we're involved in people's lives. Um, we're connecting with them. We're, 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 we're letting them know that we care for them, um, that we encourage them um, by letters, by text messages, not just to be involved in, say, just our family's lives, but, but in the family of God because they're also our family, to be connecting with them. Um, and it goes with the community. How am I showing that this person in the image of God, uh, maybe you get a phone call, somebody needs help. Man, that's the last thing I want to do, but, but is there a way, God, that I can show this person kindness, this down-and-out person, the way I can minister to, this, to them in this way um, and just give up my time and resources and maybe have opportunity to share the gospel with them? You know, at work, do we view people as just sometimes objects that I could just take advantage of this person so that I could climb the corporate ladder or I could get ahead a little bit more? You know, we're not to take advantage of people, but God, may, may I remember they're made in the image of God. I'm going to treat them with respect and dignity, and it's not all about me. I'm going to live in a God-honoring way, but still caring for other people. Um, you know, really, the, the personhood just impacts every aspect of our lives, you know, do we care for the less fortunate? And I, I think it's more than just our, our deacon fund offering. Um, I love our mission projects of small groups, and we're talking, we're going to do that again in October. But it's more than just, all right, let's give to some project, we're done with it. But I love how some groups continue to get connected, continue to be involved in people's lives, and continue to minister as groups. That's what we want to do. We, they're precious. 
whether it's a suffering, precious suffering saint like Violet Lotin um, and what she's going through, or if it's somebody that's doing great and they're here in church, but still to be able to connect and encourage them because they're made in the image of God. On and on the list could go. But to be a person and to remember the, the value of personhood means to be connected in people's lives. I want to close with a nine-minute video clip. I know that abortion isn't the only thing in the personhood subject. I know it's probably one of the main ones right now. But I came across an article two weeks ago, and it was reading it's USA Today. And in this USA Today article, it referenced Dr. Steve Hammond. And it said something that piqued my interest. So I chased down Dr. Steve Hammond and was pretty stunned that his story would be in USA Today. But I want to show you his nine-minute clip. Um, We cut it off. You may want to chase it down later because really the last four minutes are pretty powerful. Also what he says about his personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, But this is um, Dr. Steve Hammond and his story going back to the 70s but to today. Hello, I'm Dr. Steve Hammond. I'm a board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist. I've been in practice for over 40 years, and I've delivered over 4,000 babies during my career. I've also taken part in the evaluation of at least 20,000 pregnant women in a group practice. Early in my career, I did over 700 abortions. I want to tell you the story of why I stopped doing abortions and why I'm now a spokesman for the pro-life movement. I started, uh, I guess we need to start at the beginning. Uh, I was raised in a small town in rural West Tennessee. I have to start by telling you that my mother was a spiritual leader of my household. And she introduced me to Jesus when I was four years old. Early in my teenage years, uh, I knew I wanted to be a physician. And in those days, these were the 60s when I grew up. That that was a very tumultuous time. Uh, There was a lot of rebellion, young people rebelling. They thought they wanted freedom. Freedom has naturally has boundaries when it's true freedom. But when I went to college, um, many of my peers at that time were seeking the same thing I was seeking. That was freedom. We shucked the boundaries of the moral underpinning that we had had as children. Um, It was during that time, I think, that I've I've developed a a sense of moral relativism uh, and I moved away from the tenets of the faith that I'd been taught as a child. I realized my dream of, of going to medical school and halfway through medical school, Roe versus Wade was passed down in 1973. Uh, I don't, there was not a 24-7 uh, newscast in, that, in those days. Uh, we learned about uh, Roe versus Wade through our faculty. Um, they basically were in favor of this ruling. Uh, they viewed it as a chance for women to be freed of um, the burden of an unwanted pregnancy. And coming from my background of the moral relativism, I I bought into that argument. Uh, This really took root uh, when I became a resident in OBGYN though. Uh, I hadn't done abortions until then, but during the fourth month of my residency, I was introduced to the abortion procedure. We did a rotation in Planned Parenthood. You have to remember in those days, we didn't have real-time ultrasound that we have today that allows us to see the baby moving in utero. Uh, We only had our examination and our history taking to uh, determine the length of gestation of a pregnancy. Um, We didn't do abortions at that time uh, after the first trimester. Um, So it was important to be very careful in examining patients. Um, So I quickly caught on and I really became quite a good technician doing abortions. Uh, First uh, in my training and then I started moonlighting doing them. Over the next year and a half I did 
700 abortions, approximately 700 abortions. Um, I was even traveling to nearby cities, moonlighting, doing abortions for money. Um, it all ended on a Saturday morning in July of 1977. Uh, the, that was at Planned Parenthood. Um, I guess I should tell you how an abortion is done. I think one of the problems that we have in uh, talking about abortion and the pro-choice movement is that we think of abortion in the abstract. We don't think of it as reality. I hold in my hand a small curette. This is a flexible six millimeter curette. They make them in much larger sizes, but the larger sizes, you have to dilate the cervix even more. Uh, this is okay for uh, an abortion up to about six weeks. The cervix is dilated ahead of time and this, and this tube is passed into the, into the uterus through the cervix. The other end of this is attached to a suction tubing and the other end of the suction tubing is uh, connected to a vacuum, a very powerful vacuum. It's at least 20 or 30 times the power of your vacuum cleaner at home and that suction is applied right through the tip of that catheter. What that does is it pulls the amniotic sac into the tube and ruptures the membranes. Uh, the the um, sac of fluid is called the amniotic sac and in a six to seven week pregnancy there's about a tablespoon of amniotic fluid that comes first. At about six weeks you can get most of the pregnancy tissue through there. But after about six weeks, that little hole there, the baby is much bigger than that. And it won't go through that. So as we pull the membranes through, we remove the catheter and we use a pair of metal forceps to go in and remove the pregnancy. Uh, this is usually done by pulling the baby apart in pieces. Um, after the procedure is done, the abortionist's task is not finished. He has to reassemble the baby uh, after it's done to be sure all the parts are removed. Now, I speak of this coldly, much like a, uh, a pathologist would do an autopsy, and that's really the way abortionists approach the procedure. They're detached and not part of actually what's happening. Well, this all came to a grinding halt that's that Saturday at Planned Parenthood. I put the catheter, and the cervix had already dilated, I put the catheter into the uterus and started the suction. Instead of a tablespoon of amniotic fluid, I got more like about a quart of amniotic fluid. And then it, the baby kicked me. It was the first time I realized I was taking a human life. I had a one-year-old at home and I knew what a kick was all about. That really made me rethink what I was doing. That young lady had to be taken to the operating room where the baby was dismembered and removed. Now, the problem with that was that she was much further along than we had thought. Uh, the faculty had made a bad mistake in judging the uterine size. She was about five months pregnant. I'd like to say I became a convert at that point, but it, it really took a lot longer than that. Fast forward about five years. Um, I was in private practice. Uh, my wife and I had two children, and she was pregnant with our third child. Uh, one night she told me, she said, you know, I feel like I did when I was going into labor with the other two, and problem was she was only 26 weeks long. She was in preterm labor, advanced preterm labor. And despite our best efforts to stop her labor, she delivered Matthew. Matthew weighed two pounds and three ounces when he was born. He lost down to one pound and 11 ounces. Now in 1982, that was practically a death sentence. It was the cusp of viability, but praise the Lord, he survived. And not only survived, he's, he's with us today and doing well. But then I had a problem uh, getting my arms around the fact that the neonatologists were working around the clock 
to save my son's life. And in another facility, they were aborting babies that same gestational age. Now that's the scientific reason that I became pro-life because I realized that no matter how far along pregnancy is, it's still a baby. The spiritual part of my journey happened another decade, almost a decade later, when I was reintroduced to the Jesus my mother had introduced me to. And that led me to read scripture and understand about the sanctity of life. encourage you to go home and watch the rest of it. Pretty sobering, um, but still may we remember the implications of personhood. God, may we pray for the abuse, pray for this whole movement in our country, and it's being ravaged by, um, by liberals and their godless pursuit. May we love one another and be what God wants us to be. Let's close in prayer. God, we, we thank you for your thoughts, how precious they are of us as we're in the womb. God, may, as we look at our country and just the godlessness, the selfishness, people wanting their immoral behavior, not wanting anything in the way, God, what they need is not more laws. They're grateful for anything that turns back godless action of abortion, but God, they need Jesus Christ. Father, they, the way to, for change is not through legislation or legalization of abortion, but God, it's for Jesus Christ to come into heart. So I pray that we would be ever attentive that we would be used to introduce people to Christ and as they grow in their relationship with you to see change such as Dr. Hammond experienced. Lord, as we look around us, may we love one another. May we be gentle and loving because of the dignity each have in the image of Christ to everyone. Lord, may we radiate Christ who was so selfless and always meeting the needs of those that were down and out, available to minister to them. God, may we be like Christ to one another. We love you and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Lord bless. Have a great week.